0: and do some things there so Jackson and Lydia up there in the sound booth running the whole thing this morning that's good and uh, they need him but uh, it's good to have him be able to sit down there as well I I forgot to mention this during the announcements but um, one of the things that I'd like to do as soon as we're finished up this morning is if we can meet with the ladies down in the front this morning and kind of discuss some of the things that we want to do for a couple of these families that uh, that really need our help and um, you know men will be a part of it as well but like Miss Barbara I mean, it's gonna be kind of on the ladies to go over there and see her and, and do the things for her that she needs help with. So if we can meet real quick after the service, that would be good. And uh, we'll we'll just make sure that we're all on the same page with with stuff for her and for some of the others as well. But Colossians chapter three, I think the entire Christian life can be summed up in this one verse. And I'm gonna use this as a jumping-off point this morning. I'm not necessarily gonna stay here in Colossians chapter three. I'm gonna get you to turn around to a few different verses with me, but the Bible says in Colossians chapter three in verse number two, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Boy, if we could grasp what that verse is telling us, then all of the rest of the Bible would fall into place and we wouldn't have to worry about any of the rest of it. If our affections were set where they belong, then all the things in this earth, on this earth that, that take our affection and take our time and take our... our, our, our uh, focus would all be in the right place. Everything else would be right if our affections are set on the right place. And uh, uh, it's, it's funny, um, when we were growing up, we, we grew up in a different generation. And I know I'm not that old, but this generation is very, very different than the one that we grew up in. And, and uh, we heated our house with wood. We do the same thing today. I heat my house with wood. Uh, but back then, there was, there was 10 of us, not, not all of us were able to do it at the same time, but usually about four or five, three of us boys were the oldest ones, and, and uh, so naturally, we had to do a lot of the work, and uh, you know, my dad would get these, uh, we had a guy that lived behind us who was a, he, his job was, a, he had a tree cutting service, he would go and cut these trees down, and a lot of times they would take the wood, and they would split it up, and then sell it, or whatever else, but... Every so often, he'd get these trees that were just so big around they couldn't even get their saw through it. And naturally, he would drop that off on our property for us to cut up and try to do something with. And uh, so we'd get these pieces. My dad would finally get through, I think we had like a 36 inch bar, and he had to cut it from both sides to try to be able to get through this piece of wood. He would cut it, and then it's all these giant pieces that are like this big around and this thick. And you know, here we are at 10, 11, 12 years old, get on there and split the wood. You know, so we're hacking on this thing and can't move it because it's so big. And, and uh, well, what would happen is we'd get into the middle of the winter. Everything's covered in snow. Indiana, usually, you know, once you get that base layer of snow, it, a lot of times it stays there until the end of the winter. Uh, you know, you might have a thaw here and there, but uh, I can remember more than one time, more than two times, more than five times, <laughs> two o'clock in the morning. I'm dead asleep, and I, you know, my dad comes into the room, the lights flip on, how come there's no wood in the house? Get down there to the pile and go get some wood. <laughs> Put a coat on, and you're not even awake, and you're down there, and there's no wood down there except stuff that's buried under snow, and so you're digging through the snow to try to find a piece of wood that you can bring back up to the house so you can go back to bed. And uh, the other night, we, we were on our way home. And I told my wife, I was like, the wood's wet that's up there, they're going to have to, kids are going to have to go down to the pile, and they're going to have to get, you know, some, some wood from the main pile and bring it up to the house because it's wet. And she said, oh, you think it's, I said, if you only knew <laughs> what we had to do, I said, I've never woken them up in the middle of the night and sent them down to the wood pile to go get wood. I said, they can handle a little bit of drizzle. And they got a nice wagon to drag it up in. And there's a big pile of wood waiting for them there that they don't have to dig through. They just need to go get it. And five minutes later, they had a whole pile of wood up at the house. And they, they, you know, they, we, we burned it, and everything was fine. You know? Funny thing is, I have a brother that lives out in Denver, the one that's in between Brian and I. And he sent me a screenshot with, his, uh, with the weather there, the temperature there. It was negative seven degrees. And he sends me this picture. And underneath it, he said, go get some wood. <laughs> I said, I knew exactly what he was talking about. I didn't even have to ask him. But <clears throat> I'm, I'm trying to train my children to grow up with responsibility. And I think the, a lack of responsibility is the problem that, that we're facing in our culture today. Nobody has any responsibility anymore. They, they grow up without ever having been made to do anything that they don't want to do. If I'm busy playing video games, you can't tell me to get up and go out and take the trash. If I'm busy doing this, you can't make me... They have no responsibility, no sense of responsibility today. And so when they get to adulthood, they think the world's just supposed to bow at their feet. And surprise, the world doesn't just bow at your feet. And then they struggle to get along as an adult, and they struggle to make it. And I digress, but one one of the phrases that I've used with my children over and over is probably one that you've used as well. When I find something that is not done that they should have done or found something that that they have done that they should not have done, I use this phrase, you should not have to be told to do that. And maybe your parents use the same thing on you. How many times have you been told, you should not have to be told to do that? You're old enough by now that you should be taking on that responsibility. You should not have to be told. I've used that many times and I know I had it many times used on me. But we're the children of God. If we know Jesus Christ is our Savior, then we become God's child, and he treats us like his children. And the Bible talks about the discipline that God gives us, the chastisement that comes because we are his children. We experience all the benefits and all the blessings of belonging to God and being one of his children, but he also treats us the way that we treat our own children. And there are times I think God says, you ought to know better. You ought not to have to be told, that. The whole Christian life can be summed up, I think, in five things that we should know without having to be exhorted, without having to be threatened, without having to be rebuked in any way to do. And so what I want to share with you this morning, and hopefully just a reminder to you, is several things that we should not have to be told. But we'll look at a few different verses this morning, and we'll take some time to go through these different passages and look at these different things that we should not have to be told. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you for an opportunity that we have to be here this morning. I pray that you'd use the message in our hearts. Help us to live lives as Christians and as children of God. And God, I pray that you'd move us to, to make decisions where decisions need to be made this morning. Thank you again for all you do for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 6. A Christian, number one, should not have to be told to love God. Right, we're given command after command after command to love God, and, and you know, uh, the fact that it's commanded just just shows us that we that we, as Christians, a lot of times just don't do what we should naturally do. Right, the Bible tells us many times. Deuteronomy chapter six and verse number five, the Bible says, "And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might." Turn a few pages over to Deuteronomy chapter eleven. I've got a few, few places for you to look this morning, so turn, turn your pages quickly if you can, but Deuteronomy chapter 11 and verse number one says this, therefore thou shalt love the Lord thy God and keep his charge and his statutes and his judgments and his commandments always. But he says, thou shalt love the Lord thy God. Turn over to Matthew chapter 22. We see this all the way throughout the Gospels as well. Matthew chapter 22, verse number 37 Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, Jesus said unto him, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. By the way, Jesus quoted the Old Testament a lot. That that just proves two things. Number one, the Old Testament is the word of God. Number two, Jesus knew the Bible. He had memorized it. He had studied it. He understood it. And it was right on the tip of his tongue. How many times did he use the Bible? I, I, I should probably do a study on that and see how many times Jesus quoted from the Old Testament. But he does it again in Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12 and verse 30. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment, he says. Luke chapter 10, verse number 27 Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. So over and over and over we see in the word of God we're commanded to love him. It should not be that we have to be commanded to love him, but we are commanded to love him. And some carnal Christian or somebody that's unsaved even might say, do you have to force yourself to love God? No, loving God for the Christian ought to be as natural as water flowing downhill. It should be a very easy thing for us to do. When you stop to think about everything that God has saved you from and when you stop to think about everything that we have to gain by being a child of God, our love for him should not be forced. It shouldn't be drawn out of us. We should love him for who he is. And so a Christian should not have to be told to love God. But number two, if you will turn over to Proverbs chapter nine, Proverbs chapter nine, a Christian should not have to be told to fear God. A Christian should not have to be told to fear God. It should be something that just comes naturally to us. As we grow and as we mature as Christians, we've been going through the, the book of James on Wednesday nights, and the book of James is about maturity as a Christian. He talks about going on to perfection. He doesn't, he's not saying that we're going to be sinless. He doesn't say that we're going to be perfect in the way that we think of somebody being perfect, but he tells us that we should be moving on toward maturity as a Christian, and part of maturity as a Christian is taking, the, taking on the responsibility of what a Christian just ought to do. Same way that a child who is going on to maturity will naturally do the things that they just ought to do, and they shouldn't have to be told that. And a Christian shouldn't have to be told to fear God. Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. If your life is going to be well balanced, it must be in the fear of God. God's not the boogeyman waiting for you to do something wrong so he can can squash you like a bug. He's not not out there trying to uh, uh, find ways that he can punish us. God delights in mercy, the Bible says. The Bible says he's gracious in, in all those things that we know about God, but God is also just. And if we stop and think about it, we would not want God to be any other way. Right? It wouldn't be fair if God punished some people and did not punish others. We would think, where's the justice in that? The same way you see often, I mean, it depends on where it happens and who the judge is and everything else, but you know, sometimes you see somebody commit a murder and get five years, and then somebody you know, steals from a grocery store or something and gets 40 years. You know? It just doesn't seem fair. Where's the justice in that? And I don't know of specific examples, but you see that kind of stuff happen a lot. What if God did that with us? What if God said, oh, well, you did this, well, light punishment for you. Oh, you did the same thing, heavy punishment for you. We, we would want God to be fair. We would want God to be just. We should expect that God will judge our actions for everything that we do. And that's what the fear of the Lord is. You should expect that if you disobey God, he's going to judge you. And that should keep you from disobeying him. That's what the fear of it is. Why do you not just go out and shoot somebody if you don't like them? It's the fear of the, of the law. It's the fear of spending a life in jail or, or getting the death penalty, right? Why don't you just go ram somebody's car if you don't like the way they're driving? Because the fear of the repercussions, right? We have fear all the way through our lives. It's a healthy fear. And yet, when it comes to God, we feel like we can just sin and do whatever we want to do and live our lives the way we want to live and live as if God is not there and as if God will never judge us. If you are his child, the Bible says, for whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. You ought to expect that if you disobey God, he's going to judge you. And that ought to keep you from sinning. That's what the fear of the Lord is. That's a healthy fear. The law of the harvest is sowing and reaping. We need to understand that we're going to reap what we sow. Eventually, it's going to come out. You might plant in the ground and nobody sees that seed and it might start coming up and nobody knows what it is yet. You know, there's many times when, you, when you're driving past a field and, the, and whatever's in the field is just a, a six inches or a foot tall and you don't know if it's beans or corn or whatever it's going to be yet, but eventually it grows up enough that you can tell exactly what it is. And that's exactly the law of sowing and reaping that the Bible talks about when it comes to our sin as well. You sow, you sow, you sow, you sow, you're going to reap the consequences. And often you reap far more than what you've sown. And God is a God that that is a God of justice, and and we ought to expect that that's uh, the way that it's going to be. But that's where the fear of the Lord takes over and we begin to discipline ourselves. The fear of God teaches us. Godly living draws us closer to God himself. Turn over to Proverbs 28. See, because fearing God is the foundation that will help us to have the right attitude toward God and toward other people. When we fear the consequences of our disobedience to him, then we can live in the right relationship with him because it will keep us from doing things that bring God's judgment. Right? It's a healthy thing. Kids need boundaries the same way that, that a sports game needs boundaries What if you played basketball and there was no rules, right? If you felt like dribbling up into the stands and dribbling across the top row and back down and up to the basket? I mean, what what kind of rule is that, right? Or you could double dribble or pick it up and, you know, uh, the little kids play uh, before, you know, Jackson and Alex play in the the school, uh, play for the school, and before that they have little kids games, and they don't really call traveling and things, and it's funny, because these kids will pick it up and look around and they can't get past so they just start dribbling it again. They pick it up and they look around and they put it down and start dribbling again. Right? There's no rules. And, and it's, it's, you know, for them it's fun because they don't know that there is supposed to be rules, but somebody's got to be there to referee it and everything else. There has to be out of bounds. There has to be fouls. There has to be all of that stuff in order to make the game fun. Same is true with our kids. If there's no boundaries, then it's, there's no fun in that because, well, one time I did it and I got in trouble. The next time I did it and I got away with it, Whoa! Well, wonder if this is going to be the time that I get in trouble or the time that I get away with it, right? So naturally, think about this in a basketball game, right? If you dribbled it out of bounds and came back in and the ref didn't call it, guess what I'm going to try to do next time? I'm going to dribble out of bounds and hopefully I get by with it again, right? But the next time I dribble out of bounds and he calls it, that's nothing but frustrating, Right, Because now I don't know, can I go out of bounds or can I not? Right. Same thing is true with our children. And this is not a message on the family, but you have to have boundaries and you have to be consistent in those boundaries. Otherwise, the kids get confused and it's not fun. And the same thing is true when it comes to God and his word. We have those boundaries and those boundaries are there for a reason. And you ought to expect that when you step over those boundaries, God's going to judge you for it. Now, sometimes God is merciful, and he allows you to do it every once in a while. But you ought to expect that every time you step out of those bounds, even if it's not immediate, you're going to have a consequence for disobeying God. And that's where the fear of God comes in, the same way that you have a fear of a ref blowing the whistle and calling you out of bounds or blowing the whistle and calling a foul on you, right? Proverbs chapter 24 and verse 28 and verse 14 says this, Happy is the man that feareth all way. but he that hardeneth his heart shall fall into mischief. Happy is the man that feareth always. You know why? Because if you just automatically assume, if I disobey God, I'm going to get judged, then you're just not going to disobey God. And not only are you not judged, you get the blessings from living the way that God wants you to live. So a Christian should not have to be told to love God. He shouldn't have to be told to fear God. Number three, turn over to John chapter four. A Christian should not have to be told to worship God. John chapter four and verse number 23 says this. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. See, God commands us to worship him, and he will be worshipped. The host of heaven worships him. We who are blood bought ought to be the first to crown him King of Kings. Even the thief on the cross said, Lord, Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. He called him Lord. He understood. He recognized his position. And essentially, he was bowing down to his authority. Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. The main reason why we would not worship God in our lives is because it doesn't fit with our lifestyle. Right? To worship God in so many cases just doesn't fit with the way that I want to live. So I guess today I'm just not going to do that. This week just didn't work out well for me to worship God, so I'm just not going to do it. See, we, we, we have a, a completely wrong concept of worship. We get this idea that you can only worship when you come to church on Sunday, and we have morning worship. This is not a worship service, right? Worship can take place at church, but this is not a worship service. Preaching is all about exhortation. And, and and direction to doctrine, and rebuke, and reproof, right? I mean, isn't that what the Bible says, that, that uh, preaching ought to accomplish, right? So not everything that we do in a morning church service is worship, but worship ought to happen in the morning service, and it ought to be a part of it, but the command in the, is in the Bible, the question is, comes down to this, is he preeminent in your life? Colossians chapter 1 and verse 18 says that in all things he might have the preeminence, Does he have the preeminence in your life? Because if he doesn't have the preeminence, then something else does. And whatever that something else is, you've set up as an idol in your life. And you're not worshiping him the way that he wants to be worshipped. Worship ought to take place every single day of your life in every single aspect of your life. He doesn't just want a favorable spot or a spot close to the top. He wants the preeminence. That's what we talked about on Wednesday night. Who is God to demand that I give him the first place in my life? Why does he get to have the first place? He's the creator. He made you. He gives you everything that you have, including the breath that you just took. He deserves that spot. And it's said that God has to demand that out of us. You should not have to be told to worship God. One of the best ways we can do that is by being in church to worship him together as a church family, a French proverb that I heard before says, a good meal ought to begin with hunger, right? It's, it's hard to enjoy a meal when you're not hungry. But when you're hungry, anything tastes good, right? Uh, uh, we were just in India with Brother Nitin, and I know he's, he watches every Sunday morning, all, all the services, they sit together on Sunday night and uh, Sunday night over there and watch the morning service right before they go to bed. We were over there with him, and I'm telling you, I finally had to say, Brother Nitten, you have got to stop feeding us. I cannot even, I can't breathe, and pretty soon I'm not going to be able to stand up. Every, I mean, as soon as we finished with breakfast, they were out there cooking lunch, and as soon as we finished lunch, they were cooking, what are we going to do for dinner? I'm like, I can't even breathe. I can't think about dinner right now, right? So a good meal begins with hunger. I, I, if, if you want to eat a really good meal, you've got to be hungry to be able to do it, Right? And then even if I cook, you'll enjoy it. So (laughs) that's the way that hunger works, right? And if we approach the word with a hunger to be satisfied, we'll be satisfied every time. And effective worship begins with a hunger for God. The problem is we don't reverence God the way that we should. God's not the man upstairs. God's not your homeboy. He's not your co-pilot. He's none of those things. We need to have a reverential awe for who God is. And I've said this before, but when we get to heaven, we're not just going to stroll on past and tip our cap to him while he's sitting on his throne. I think we're going to be so in awe of the majesty of God that we're not going to be able to help but do anything and bow our knee to the throne where God sits. and not going to be able to do anything but take those crowns. We're not going to want to parade through heaven with the crowns that we can earn. We're not going to want to do anything but take those crowns off and lay them at his feet. And it would do us well to have the reverential awe for God now before we get to heaven because of just who God is. And if we could see God for who he really is, then we would see ourselves for who we really are, and we would want to be right with him. And we would worship him, and we would reverence him the way that he wants to be worshipped and the way that he wants to be reverenced. Turn over to Psalm 103 question is where and how does he fit into your schedule because the answer to that will determine your happiness god cannot do for you what he would like if you don't worship him in spirit and in truth psalm 103 verse number one says bless the lord O my soul and all that is within me bless his holy name bless the lord O my soul and forget not all his benefits so you ought to say amen in church You ought to say praise the Lord during the preaching. And frankly, I think we do far too little of it. You know, lift up your hand and shout. You're not going to scare me. (laughs) If you're doing it for attention, then shame on you. But if you're doing it because you can't keep it inside and you're so excited about what he's done for you, then shame on you if you don't do it. That's part of worship. That's exactly what worship is. I think so often we get so stuffy in church sometimes and we forget the reason we're here. Part of that reason is for the purpose of worship. And that's exactly what worship is, is praising him for who he is and what he's done. And when you get to the point where, where, where like a cup, you've, you've filled it up to the top and it can't do anything but overflow, I think that's, that's, that's the way that it works in our Christian life. You get so full of, the, uh, of thankfulness for what he's done for you, and you get so full of uh, uh, just, just overwhelmed by how good he is to us that you can't help but let it come out. And I'm not, I know that some people are more shy than others, but, but, but you sit there and you are not moved at all by the word of God. You're not moved at all by the preaching. You're not moved at all to the point where you want to say amen. Then something's wrong with you. He's done so much for us. How can you help but say amen? How can you help but praise the Lord? How can you help but raise your hand and say, that's me. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done. He talks all throughout the Bible, lifting up holy hands, right? If you're doing it for attention, then that's, that's on you. But you look at worship in the Bible, right? David danced before the Lord, the Bible says. He didn't care what people thought about him. He didn't care who was watching him. And guess what happened? Michael, his wife, chastised him for dancing before the Lord because you're a king and a king ought not to do that. And guess who God judged? He judged Michael, not David. He said, who are you to judge what David has going on in his heart? If he wants to worship me, you let him worship me. Now, the Bible also does say, let all things be done decently and in order. Somebody wants to get up and hoot and holler and run around the auditorium. That's not decently and in order. And a lot of people are doing that for attention. I've been in services before where people were hollering and shouting so loud, they could not even hear what the preacher was saying, and neither could I. So you weren't doing it because you were excited about what he was talking about. You want attention, I think, in a lot of cases. But I think we need more of it. We need more of the praise, and we need more of the worship, and we need more of the thankfulness for just exactly who he is. A Christian ought not to have to be told to worship God. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, number th- number 4. A Christian should not have to be told to serve God. It seems almost senseless to say it because it ought to be second nature for us. It ought to be like breathing and eating. You're a Christian, you eat, you breathe, you serve God. You ought not to have to be told, get out and serve God. Oh, you need to do something for the Lord. It ought to be natural. It ought to be something that you just do because you love him. 1 Corinthians chapter six and verse number 19 says this. What? No, you're not. Paul is almost, almost can't believe it. What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and you're not your own? For you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. They belong to him anyway. You ought not have to be told to serve him. You're his servant, right? What do you think would happen in a kingdom when a king had to say, uh, just a reminder, you're a servant, and remember, you have to serve right? He wouldn't be there very long. The king would have his head cut off and he'd be shipped out, right? The same way with God. We ought not to have to be told, oh, oh, by the way, you're a servant of the king. You need, you need to serve, right? It, it, it ought to be something that you should not have to be told. You just should do it because you'll you love him and you're a servant of his. Realize that you're bought with his price, his precious blood. That's the price that he bought you with, Is that not enough reason to want to serve him? Psalm 68, verse 19 says, Blessed be the Lord who daily loadeth us with benefits, even the God of our salvation. He gives us everything he had. Just makes sense that you would want to do everything you could for someone who's done so much for you and continues to do so much for you. It should be a natural thing to just want to live for him and to serve him. Think about this. How many of the 168 hours a week do you serve God? I talked about this a few weeks ago. How much do you give him, an hour, two hours, 20 minutes? How how much of your week does he have when it comes to reading the Bible and praying and and giving out the message of the gospel and taking time to serve in the ministries? We talk about being willing to tithe. The tithe is 10%. Everything that you make, 10% belongs to God, right? If you make $100, 10 of it belongs to God. And that's such a small amount that he asks us, right? But if everything that we have belongs to God, At least 10% of it, God gives us every breath that we have. Shouldn't 10% of that breath go back to serving Him? Shouldn't 10% of that go back into His service? You know what 10% of 168 hours is? That's 17 hours a week that we just owe God for what He's done for us. That's just the tithe. And then He says the offering on top of that. How many hours did you spend this week serving God? Belongs to Him. But it ought to come easy. 17 hours? It ought to come easy if you love him. It ought to come easy if you want to serve him, right? How, mu- how much time did you spend sitting in front of the computer this week? Watching videos? How much time did you spend in front of the TV this week? Oh, I don't know what the average is, but I know the average in America is really, really high of the, the amount of time that's spent in front of digital media. Whether that's a computer, a phone, a laptop. Uh, An iPad, the television. Most people have no problem spending 17 hours in front of that. How much time did you give the Lord this week? A big part of our service is telling people that Jesus loves them and that he died for them. And that can be at any time. Boy, sit down and write a letter to somebody that you know that's not saved. How hard is that? Go by their house and visit them. Hey, you've been on my heart. I just want to make sure that you know Jesus Christ is your Savior. How hard is that? If you love them and you love him, it should be an easy thing for us to tell them. It's then encouraging them to come to Sunday school and come to church to learn the Bible. Isn't it time you got started on some of those things? I have read a story about an 18-year-old girl in Washington State. She she went to a, a little church that was just right up the road from her house, and she hadn't really ever been in church. But for the first time in her life, she heard the gospel message. And the following Tuesday, the members of that church got a letter from that girl, and here's what she said. She said, Dear church members, last Sunday I attended your church, and I heard the preacher. In the sermon, the preacher said that all men have sinned and rebelled against God, and because of their rebellion and disobedience, they all face eternal damnation and separation from God. But then he also said God loves man and sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to redeem men from their sins, and that all those who believe in him would go to heaven and live with God eternally. My parents recently died in rapid succession. I know they did not believe in Jesus Christ, whom you call the Savior of the world. If what you believe is true, they are damned. You compel me to believe that either the message is true, that you yourself don't believe this message, or that you don't care. You see, we live only three blocks from your church, and no one ever told us. Could you imagine getting a letter like that? What would your neighbors say? They found out that you were a Christian and that you went to church every week and that you believe that if they died and went and didn't know Jesus Christ as their Savior, they're going to spend an eternity in hell. What they say, you either don't believe it or you don't care. Because I live right here and you never told me. That's our job, it's our responsibility. And you ought to love the Lord so much that you should not have to be told to tell people about Jesus Christ. It ought to be as natural as breathing. The way we serve God is as important as life or death. If we serve him and we share him with others, we're bringing life to those who accept it. We're snatching them away from Satan. We're snatching them out of the pits of hell if they accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. And if we decide that we're too busy to serve him or we don't share the message of the gospel, we're literally allowing people to die and go to hell because we're too busy, because I don't have time, because I'm too shy, because I don't this, I don't that. We have all the excuses in the world for why we can't go do it. And all the while, people are dying and going to hell and writing back letters and saying, either you don't believe it, it's not true, or you don't care because nobody ever told me. What an important responsibility we have to serve God. Turn back to John chapter 14. I'm going to give you the last one here. The fifth thing that a Christian should not have to be told, we shouldn't have to be told to obey God. I suppose this kind of goes right along with the fear of the Lord. If you fear him, you're going to obey him. But John chapter 14 and verse number 23, Jesus answered and said, if a man love me, he will keep my words and my father will love him and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. If a man love me, he will keep my words. If you love the Lord, you'll keep his commandments. He said that more than once in the Bible. A guy by the name of Pierre Barlow was a gunner in the fort of Mont Valerien during the Prussian siege of Paris. And one day he was standing at his gun and a general, General Noel, who was the commander, came up and he said, I see something through my spyglass. He said, look through your scope. You see that bridge right there? He said, you see that little, that little shanty right next to the bridge? He said, that's a Prussian nest. It's full of Prussian soldiers. Why don't you see if you can level that gun and take that house out? And this, this gunner, he saw his face just go white. And he, and he said, is, is, is there something wrong? He said, oh, no, sir. No, sir. He said, I see it, and, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll take aim. And he did just that, and he shot, and the whole house just exploded. Just nothing left of And the general patted him on the back, and he said, well done, my man, well done, you got it. And his face was still just as white as it had been, but then the general noticed that a little tear was coming down the side of his cheek. They said, what's wrong? You hit it. You you accomplished the objective. And he said, sir, that was my house. It was everything I owned in the world. You see, obedience may not always be what we want to do, but it's certainly what we're commanded to do. We come up with lots of excuses why we can't obey this command or that command. Well, that's just not part of my nature. That, that, that doesn't sit well with me. I've never done that in my life before. Anybody who knows me knows that it would be impossible for me to, to go do that. Or everybody knows me knows that it would, would be impossible for me to stop doing that, whatever it happens to be. There's all kinds of commands that were given in the Bible. Those are not valid excuses. Jesus said of himself in John chapter 8 and verse 29, I do always those things that please the Father. Jesus didn't even want to go to the cross. He knew he had to, and he was willing to do it, but he said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. He could have said no. He could have said no, but his Father told him to do it, and he did. The hardest decision of his life, and he did it anyway because he always wanted to do those things that pleased his Father. Peter said, it's better to obey God rather than man. It's important to obey man that God has put over us, but how much more important is it to obey God? Do you follow the commands that God has given us in every area of your life? Or are there some things that you know that, you're, that you should be doing that you're not? Or some things that you are doing that you know you should not be? Do you follow every command? It's important that we do that. There are hundreds of commands that we should be following, which is why it's important that we read and study and understand the Bible. I didn't know is not a valid excuse. All right? Police officers out there pulling people over and writing tickets. And, and if you're going 95 in a 60 and you just said, Oh, I didn't know it was illegal to go 95, guess what the police officer is going to say? Welcome to my handcuffs in the back seat of my car. I'm sorry you didn't know that. You should have. It's your responsibility to know that you can't go 95 and a 60. Now you pay the consequences. And the same is true with the word of God. Well, I didn't know. That's your responsibility. Study the Bible. Read the Bible. Know what it says. Know what you ought to do. And especially once you know what you ought to do, do it. I need to get Miss Nancy to come up here and preach for me. It's a lifelong pursuit to make sure that we're living as closely How the book tells us that we should live as possible. And it doesn't matter if you've been saved for five minutes or 50 years. If you find a command in the Bible that God told us to do or that God told us not to do, you ought to be doing it. We're stepping up. And I want our church to be a Bible institute. We ought to be, I want our kids to graduate from high school with the equivalent of a Bible college education. That's the way it ought to be. A church ought to not have a Bible Institute. A church ought to be a Bible Institute. We ought to be doing everything we can to train our young people. And not only training our young people, but taking that training for yourself. We're doing Bible Institute classes in addition to Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night. But how, much, how, how important is the Word of God for us to read and understand and know? It's everything. All the rest of life is just the details. This is what's important. Oh, it's so much, that's another night of my week, and I just can't. How important is it to you to make sure you're studying the Bible and knowing what God told us to do? That's what it comes down to. You can make time for anything that you want to make time for. You'll, you can move anything in your schedule to accommodate anything that you want to do, if it's important enough. So how important is this? How important is it for you to study the Bible? How important is it for you to know what God God wants us to do? I want you to be so well versed in the scripture that you don't have to wonder if something that you read or something that you hear is right or wrong. You'll know it because you know what the Bible says. That's how we ought to be as Christians. The first step is to have a heart that's willing to obey. Have you been saved? That's the first step of obedience. Have you been baptized after you've been saved? That's the second step of obedience, the first one after salvation. Do you pray? Do you read your Bible? Do you give your tithes and offerings? Do you witness for Christ? Do you live like a Christian should? And on and on and on that list could go. Are you following the commands of the word of God? And are you obeying them? Because a Christian should not even have to be told to obey God. When we get to heaven, we're going to be measured by our obedience to God. 1999, and maybe you remember this. John F. Kennedy Jr. flew his small airplane from New York City to his family home in Massachusetts for a wedding, and he had his wife and and his wife's sister on board with him. And he was a licensed pilot, but he had not gotten his instrument rating yet. Meaning, you were only supposed to fly uh, when there was visibility, when it was daylight, when you're not, you know, when there's no heavy cloud cover and everything else. But he decided that he had done it long enough, he was just going to take off, and he, he, his takeoff was delayed until after dark. Not necessarily by his own choice, but he decided he was going to get in that plane anyway and take off. And he did. He, he did exactly that. His plane never reached the destination, and all three of the passengers in that plane were killed. And what the FAA, after they examined everything and looked at all the evidence and everything else, said is they thought that he probably got completely... Uh, discombobulated, I guess is probably not the word that they use, disoriented probably is more the right word, by flying over the water, and he couldn't tell the difference between the sky and the water because everything looked the same, and he was not used to flying with, with just instruments, and his lack of experience may, uh, may well have led him to trust what he thought he was seeing more than what his instrument panel was telling him. The instrument panel was telling him that he was far too low and that his, his nose was below the horizon, but he, what he was looking at looked different than what his instrument panel was telling him. And so he followed his eyes instead of the instruments. All of us face the temptations to walk according to sight instead of by faith. Faith in God is going to keep us from crashing. Human reasoning, Human reasoning will fail us, but God never fails. His word is that instrument panel. It'll keep us on course as long as we follow it. You get away from it, and you start thinking you can do it on your own. You start thinking that you can do it without Him. You're on a collision course, and it's, you're going to crash. And you're going to your spiritual life will be ruined. See, we're all trying to grow in Christ, I believe. At least that's what we should be doing if we've been saved. As so we move into this new year, and, and we've got such a great start, we're fresh. We're only a couple weeks into it. Christians should not have to be told to love God. Christians shouldn't be, have to be told to, to, to fear God. A Christian shouldn't have to be told to worship God. Christians shouldn't have to be told to serve God. And a Christian should not have to be told to obey him. Those are things that we should just do because we love him. Those are things that we ought to just do because he is God and because he deserves those things. We should be constantly trying to mature as a Christian. And the more we give in to, to his leading in our lives, the more we surrender to him. And by the way, that's what it comes down to. Are you willing to surrender? Because as long as you have control of your life, as long as you're the one that's, that's, that's got the reins and you've never given it over to him, you're never going to love him the way that you should. And that's probably the reason you, don't have, you haven't given him the reins in your life. You're never going to worship him. You're never going to fear him. You're never going to obey him the way that you should as long as you're holding on to those reins. What it takes is surrender. You say, You know what, God, I've been running this ship for a long time, but now I want you to take the helm. This ship is yours. Here, you take it. You're a whole lot better pilot than I am. Give it to Him. Let Him do it. Let Him tell you what He wants you to do, and you say, All right, I'm the servant. I'll do it. We shouldn't have to be told those things, but sometimes we need to be reminded. The closer we desire to to be with him, the easier things become. So I want to encourage you this morning to take this message and discipline your life in the light of these eternal truths because that's what they are. They come directly from the word of God. We're commanded all these things. Everything that I talked about this morning, we're commanded to do. But there are things that we shouldn't even have to be commanded. We ought to do it because we love him, because he is who he is. We are who we are. Have you surrendered your life to God and said, God, you do with me what you want to do. You tell me what you want me to do, and I'll do it because I love you, because I want to worship you, because I fear you, because I want to serve you, because I want to do everything I can to obey. Does God have that in your life? Does God have absolute control? Because if he doesn't, then some things need to change. And your life will never be what God wants it to be until he's the one that's running it. That's when you see the blessings. That's when you really can understand how enjoyable life can be within the boundaries of God's word. He wants your life to be enjoyable. He wants to bless you. He wants you to have all of the blessings that come with being a Christian. It only comes when we're doing it his way. And that takes us surrendering to him and doing it the way that he wants it to be done. And what a blessed life it is. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Give we thank you so much for your goodness to us. God, what a privilege it is to be able to take your word and read it. What a privilege it is to be able to pray. What a privilege it is to be able to serve you. God, what a privilege even to obey you Pray that you'd help each one of us to be doing that in our lives so that we can be pleasing to you and that we can see you bless, not just, oh, with money and things and all this stuff, but so you can bless our church and we can see souls saved, so you can bless our families and we can see our kids grow up and live for you, so you can bless our church and we can see you do great things because of our willingness to surrender to you. God, I pray where decisions need to be made this morning, they would. Thank you again for all that you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen. If you-